0: you guys got this one right yeah you got yeah, this yeah. but i just got the hardcover now um so we can mail you. i'm so glad they mailed them to you that's great
1: yeah no it's a uh it's always good to have a book where it says it advanced readers edition yeah um, exactly
0: it's nice to get a, a special You're an advanced copy. reader not yeah. not early but like uh, beyond advanced <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs>
2: Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just had a great conversation with Neil Pazricha, the author of a few books, most recently, You Are Awesome.
1: We spoke to Neil 12 months ago about the happiness equation and his brand new book has just hit the shelves, You Are Awesome.
2: So in this episode, we're going to be covering a lot of the things, what it takes to be resilient in the project's that you are pursuing. So we love Neil, superstar bloke and uh, really enjoyed the conversation with him as well and without any further ado, here is Neil Pazricha, the man.
1: So the first thing we want to get started with is probably an introduction from your perspective on the book, You Are Awesome. How did this book come about and, and what's it about?
0: Okay, so, like, I feel like I hate the world we live in. I know that sounds so bad coming from someone who's focused on positivity, but I just get sucked into these endless traps of social media and my brain getting monetized for dollars everywhere, you know. I. You go on Instagram and never stop scrolling. It just it just never ends, and there's always another like, another comment to answer. Uh, I was doing it just before we started talking, and, and I feel dirty afterwards. You go on you go on YouTube, and another video starts to play. You go on Netflix, another video starts to play. You go on Twitter, there's another hashtag to click. The the whole game these days is if you can't see if you can't see the. The the product, <laughs> it's you, you know, and I just feel like that world that we're slipping into is very dangerous. There's research coming out of Dr. Gene Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E, from San Diego University, saying – that anxiety rates have spiked 30% over the past five years, which, by the way, has are rates that we have never seen before. Depression rates are spiking. We all know suicide rates are spiking. Loneliness rates are spiking. The Surgeon General says it's like the biggest epidemic since, like, obesity. Vivek Murthy wrote a cover article for HBR about this. So what's going on here? And by the way, that specific article I just mentioned from San Diego University, that research study, it says right in the white paper the anxiety rates are due to the ascendance of the smartphone. Okay, so right now we're all feeling kind of miserable. I mean, anxiety rates have never spiked thirty percent before, ever. And at the same time, if you just step outside of your little burrow and you look around, it's like, wait a minute, I can I can also press a button, have a car pick me up, uh, drive me to my front door, and have takeout waiting, or takeaway. Is that what you call it? Takeaway. Uh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. We call it takeaway. Take away <laughs> waiting on your front porch when you get home. It's like we've never lived in the most a more abundant civilization. We have more than kings had 50 years ago, right? So it's like there's this weird paradox happening. We have everything we've ever wanted and we don't feel good about it. And so I think the, the you asked me why did I write this book. I think the I think the fact that we have everything we've ever wanted is leading to the fact that we don't feel so good i think because we grew up with getting gold stars and nobody getting shipped off to war and nobody going through a famine or a great depression or 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 a plague it's because we therefore we haven't built up the muscle that we need to live in this 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 overwhelming tech saturated world we have low resilience we have thin skin if you post a picture and you get two likes you feel like you're a loser you know we all are suffering from this crippling uh thing in our chest and in our heads and I am only speaking from experience because I feel that and if I feel that after writing seven books about happiness at age 40 you know married with three kids like I feel like I'm settled and I still feel it and I'm like I feel like 20 year olds are feeling it way more than me and I know this when I speak at colleges and universities So You Are Awesome, (laughs) to answer your question eventually, is a book on how to build up that muscle of resilience, how to move from fragile to anti-fragile, how to move from thin-skinned to thick-skinned, how to move from failure-prone to failure-proof, change-resistant to change-ready, anxious to awesome. I want to be strong mentally and physically in my life, and I desperately want that for my kids because they're going to lose jobs and get fired and go through breakups and all that stuff too. And I don't think we got the the musculature right now to do that. And so, this book is my advice to myself and everybody reading it on how to strengthen ourselves for the future and to remind everybody that, you know what, you really are awesome. The subtitle, of course, gives that away because the subtitle is how to navigate change, wrestle with failure, and live an intentional life.
2: One of the uh, stories, Neil, in your book that I really like that really uh, underpins how we can build resilience or How it works is the the Taoist farmer story and the farmer who owns a horse and then a range of events happens. Can you tell us walk us through this story and what the kicker is?
0: Sure, absolutely. So this is the 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 first of all, congratulations on pronouncing the word Taoist correct. I did so many I did so many interviews referring to my own book and I was like, Taoist and somebody's like, Isn't it Taoist? So I was like
2: Well oh. uh, it was about ten minutes ago, Neil, speaking with um Ash Show here and, and I asked him exactly that. He's like I'm like, Is it Taoist? and you said it's like somewhere in between T and D very softly. Yeah. So oh, that's, that's good. just learned it.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, look, at at least you did your research, unlike me. So a farmer – here, I'm going to read the fable because it's very short. It's called the, the Fable of the Farmer with One Horse. A farmer had only one horse. One day, his horse ran away. His neighbor said, I'm so sorry. This is such bad news. You must be so upset. The man just said, we'll see. A few days later, his horse came back with 20 wild horses following. The man and his son corralled all 21 horses. His neighbor said, congratulations, this is such good news, you must be so happy. And the man just said, we'll see. One of the wild horses kicked the man's only son, bricking both his legs. His neighbor said, I'm so sorry, this is such bad news, you must be so upset. The man just said, we'll see. The country went to war, and every able-bodied young man was drafted to fight. The war was terrible and killed every young man, but the farmer's son was spared since his broken legs prevented him from being drafted. His neighbor said, congratulations, this is such good news, you must be so happy. And the man just said, we'll see. That's the end of the fable. The point of the fable, as I interpret it, because of course the beautiful thing about Taoist fables is that you can interpret it yourself, my interpretation is this is a guy who's really got resilience. He understands that every skyrocketing pleasure or stomach-churning defeat defines not who he is, but simply where he is. And that delineation is so important today. These days, I think most of us, when we go through a big skyrocketing pleasure or stomach-churning defeat, we think that's the end. That's the end of the story. I'm either doing super awesome or I'm feeling super miserable. Actually, no. It's not who you are it's where you are and if you can navigate forward from a place of strength no matter where you are that's the definition of resilience
1: well i love it and then uh off the back of this uh which was a great a great setup sort of leading into your book you've got nine of your own secrets uh that all sort of build on these ideas and one of our favorite ones was secret number five lose more to win more and there was a story of the i believe it was the the writer from the onion when when he was asked you know how do you get a a fun career making money from writing these satirical funny jokes and he said well you got to do it for free for 10 years and you sort of had Mm -hmm. a a similar sort of career trajectory I guess where you did a a hell of a lot of stuff for free where you were trying things out and uh, none of them were an enormous success but they were all you know losing a little bit on the way to eventually winning, winning big down the road. Can you sort of tell us some of your failures early on?
0: Yeah, sure. They're, so The Onion, of course, is a satirical magazine, and it, so this guy's getting paid to write jokes. Everyone's like, wait a minute. I want to do that. How do you get a job? And he's like, do it for free for 10 years. The point being, he did it for free for 10 years before he, it ended turn, turning into something that you got paid for. Similarly, people see my first book, which is called The Book of Awesome, and they say, oh, what a great idea. And I've always been a bit insulted by that because I'm like, no, actually, it's a terrible idea, just writing down things you like. That's my idea. Write down things you like. <laughs> it wasn't the idea. That made it popular, it was the fact that it came from a blog called a things.com where I wrote an awesome thing, rewrote it, edited it, found a picture for it every day for a thousand straight days. Actually it was the s- sweat that made it popular. You know, ninety nine percent perspiration. Like I just did it every day. But the thing is I didn't I, that blog got took off, it had a hundred million hits, it won best blog in the world twice at the Webby Awards. But in the book, <laughs> as you asked me, I, I outline all the blogs I started that just did not work. Like I started a website called When I Was a Kid where you're supposed to submit things that like you believe that you were a kid. Like there's fish sleeping in my waterbed or those little green boxes at the end of the street where they print newspapers. Or um, the little thing hanging at the back of your throat is how, what separates food and drink from your stomach. You know, and, and, and of course nobody ever visited the website but my sister. And I have like so many websites like that kind of you could say good idea. But really, it's just that it didn't work. I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. And every single one of those eventually built up into something that where I didn't know what I was doing because I'd done it for free for ten years. Lose more to win more is the idea that often it isn't quality over quantity, but rather it is quantity over quality. And we actually want to award people who've just, who've just done it the longest. And I, in the book, I use this example of baseball. So maybe there's a good uh, like cricket or rugby metaphor that you guys can help me with. <laughs> but, but in baseball, the guy who has the most wins also has the most losses of all time. The guy who has the most strikeouts also has the most walks. These days, they're always talking about Tom Brady. Most complete passes of any quarterback in, in the National Football League. Yeah, he probably also has the most incomplete passes. He just played the longest. Instead of looking at people that are successful as people that have had the most success, what we really need to do is look at them as having the most failure. Navigating through that failure is their real success. Developing resilience is their real success. So if you want to be successful, it's actually about what do you do when you fail. That's the muscle that we need to build.
2: No, I think that baseball analogy is the best one, much better. I can't
1: think of one for for our Australian sports over here. I saw you pick up the mic. I thought you had something uh, something ready for us, but I'd say, yeah, we'll steer clear of that. But the the baseball one sounds good for sure.
2: And the other part of the baseball analogy, it's just moving and you know stepping up to the plate as well is the hardest part for some people and then having a swing, as you were saying, and, and striking out. And the person who strikes out the most is also the person most likely to have a home run. One of the difficult things, Neil, I'd imagine, is when you're doing it for free and we've all got this bit of envy inside us and, you know, your friends are the ones working and maybe earning that earlier money and driving around better cars. Um, And when you're doing it for free on the weekends, it is a very difficult thing to just keep on doing after that seventh failure or whatever it might be so what, what's your message for those people who are you know doing it on the weekends for free and, and just failing
0: <laughs> well here's the thing um if you ever talk to like a wedding photographer i always i'm always a I, I think of myself as a photographer i like you know when if i take a picture of my iphone i'm like oh i gotta get it perfect and i i really like think of myself as a good photographer but when i see someone's photos from their wedding come back they're always way better than mine and of course they are. They're a wedding photographer. But when I always ask them, "Well, how'd you take so many good pictures?" They always say, "Oh, you're looking at the 50 good ones. I took a thousand photos, and I've never taken a thousand photos at a wedding ever." So for the per- pe- per- people struggling on the weekend, my, the question is like, "How do you know if you're going the right way?" I think is what you're asking. Because I mm-hmm. would say, just taking the number of shots—if you can exponentially increase the number of shots you take, of course you will have a way higher chance of doing something that hits the big one and certainly you'll be learning on the way but the question you're asking me is how do you know if you're going the right way here's the little question i like to ask myself to make sure i'm going the right way if i'm losing a lot in a row which by the way happens to me a ton these days i try lots of stuff that doesn't work is asking yourself this question do you like it so much you can take the pain and the punishment too and i want to kind of highlight and underscore that question because if you listen to a commencement speech or an inspirational or a motivational speaker, they always say, Find what you do what you love, find your purpose, you know, like follow your heart, that kind of stuff. The problem is what that message ignores is whether or not you like the process of getting there. I'll give you an example, there's a really famous writer named Mark Manson. He wrote a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That book has sold nine million copies in the last few years. Nine million. And I don't know another nonfiction book that sold that many. So this guy arguably has sold more books than anyone in nonfiction in the last few years so right and so everyone knows this book and it's super great but the interesting thing was mark manson actually grew up wanting to be a musician he actually really wanted to be like a rock star like not not the metaphor he actually really wanted to be like a like a lead singer of a rock band so that's what he pursued and the interesting thing was he did not like the process he did not like lugging amps to the club on a tuesday at 2 a.m he did not like spending six hours trying to memorize the same chord progression so that you could sing on top of it he, he didn't like that process whereas becoming a writer he loved that process the pain of getting into fights with people on facebook sending really long emails to random people like that you just don't need to do but you like spend like forever like working on it and like editing it and getting a sentence perfect that process was fun for him even though it was painful and so this is a really important question. You say, hey, on the weekend, am I struggling for any point? Well, do you like that process? Is it enjoyable to you? Because you know what? A lot of people tell me all the time, oh, I really want to quit my job and get a new job. Oh, yeah, why don't you? Uh well, I don't know. I know why. The reason is because you don't want the process of putting out 100 resumes, getting 25 calls back, going to 12 interviews, and getting rejected from all of them except for one. That's painful. That's a six months that's six months of rejection. That's six months of pain. That's six months of getting told no and not hearing back and getting told no and not hearing back till you find a job. That's the process to finding a new job. So do you like that? Because if not, you'll never leave.
1: I was just thinking about uh you know, this idea of always trying different things and pushing through the failure and you don't have to have all the answers but one question I was thinking is what do you think is sort of the the hardest part of the process is it the having the good idea to do something is it the actually getting started and turning that idea into reality or is it pushing through the the initial setbacks or is it sort of just all of it's tough and as you say you've got to find something that you're willing to push through that pain for
0: so I think it's none of those three things I think it's designing the original system that that creates a safety net for you. So what I mean is, the idea, no, that's not the hard part. Man, ideas are cheap. Everyone's got good ideas. Good ideas are a dime a dozen. You could go on some subreddit called Good Ideas and there's a hundred right there. You could go on Amazon's top 100. You can go on so many websites and just check the trends. There's ideas sitting everywhere. It's not that. And you said, is it struggling through it? No, that's not not even it. I think it's designing the system that allows you to not fail. And so, I'll use a couple examples here. Uh, I told you I started lots of blogs before the one that took off. Well, listen to the name of the one that took off, 1000AwesomeThings.com. My first blog post was number 1,000. I started it on a Friday. That means the next Monday I only posted on weekdays. There was number 999, 98, 97, 96, 95 on the next Friday. I actually designed a system where it was counting down, which created pressure on me. It was updated at 12.01 a.m. every night, which created pressure on me. So I could not miss a day. And if I needed an energy break, I had the weekends. So that system was actually really complex and hard to design. Although I don't get much credit for that system, it's actually what kept me going for four years of writing an essay a day. The same thing with my podcast. My podcast is called Three Books. I'm trying to find the 1,000 most formative books in the world. I've committed to publishing on the lunar calendar. Okay, so it's uh, the exact minute of every full moon and new moon, all up to 2031. There's 333 chapters. I therefore have to fill them. So you see, I've designed a system that I can't – and by the way, there's lots of times I don't feel like doing a podcast, but I can't miss my own schedule. Ryan Hawk, who's a really great friend of mine who um, hosts a popular podcast called The Learning Leader Show – I remember before I started my podcast, he's like, oh, the best thing I can recommend is a schedule. I publish my shows every Sunday night at 7, at 7 p.m. People tell me they download it for their Monday morning commute. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I thought about it. PostSecret.com, another friend of mine, Frank Warren, it's the biggest advertisement free blog in the world. He always posts it Sunday morning like, or Sunday morning at 1 a.m. or something crazy like that. Similarly, he's created a system so that he can't fail. And if he does fail or if he breaks his own system, he feels the pain of breaking it, and that is worth a lot right? because you don't want to disappoint yourself. So I think sometimes the challenge is figuring out what would make you continue to do it. And sometimes I want to just point out you can even write a contract to yourself. This is actually a chapter of the book that got cut from the book, so you won't read it. I know you guys have read the book. It's not in there. But I had a whole chapter all about contracts, how I actually write on a piece of paper contracts to myself, and I sign them in ink. And I make agreements to myself, and I make agreements with my wife on the number of nights I'm going to be away from home. I make agreements with my kids on how much TV they're going to watch. I use contracts as a tool because it it creates a system that guides my behavior.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's great advice. I think we us forcing ourselves to do a, a weekly podcast that goes up every Saturday at, at midday as well has been a big part of uh, it's. It's something's always got to go up. We know that something's due. So if there's nothing ready to go, then at Saturday at ten thirty a.m. we better be uh, recording and getting it up pretty quick. So I, I like that idea that uh, you destroyed my initial. Uh, hesitations and said, no, nah, they're all wrong. This is a much, uh, this is the real problem, which is, which is good. Um,
0: well, the six- systems be goals, right? Like that's the thing. You don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. We just did uh, Scott Adams, how to, how to fail at almost everything and still been yeah. big a couple of weeks ago, which is definitely all the, all about that systems over goals. Uh, another big secret we liked was was number seven, finding small ponds. And we are keen to hear your story uh, when you entered Harvard, and uh, what I, I believe it was uh, John MacArthur told you.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So I got to Harvard Business School, this year two thousand five. I felt like a failure. There's nine hundred people that get in there. You go to class. It's all participation based. You know, everyone sounds so smart and so confident, and so I felt terrible. And so I'm researching, like I'm doing my homework every night, which is like case study research. I work until midnight, and. And eventually, I reach out to this guy who was the former dean. I got a scholarship. It was in his name, so I wrote him a letter. He invited me for lunch. His name is John MacArthur. He was the dean of Harvard Business School from 1980 to 1995. And uh, when I went out for lunch with him, he says to me, so, Neil, how's it going? And I was like, oh, uh, terrible. (laughs) I'm stressed. I'm, like, not sleeping enough. I'm going out for these, like, job, like, these career sessions every night where there's millionaire bankers and consultants with black bags under their eyes, and we're all drinking beers with them, hoping that we can be millionaire consultants and bankers with black bags under our eyes. Like, it's just, like, this frustrating and exhausting game of trying to get these jobs at these top few companies. And he says to me, oh, you're like a guy at the beach, you're like a guy standing outside the beach at a fence looking in, and inside that beach are like 10 sunbathing beauties. You can make them whatever gender you want. There's 10 sunbathing beauties inside, and you want to get one of those beauties. You want to you win one of them over. The problem is outside the beach at the fence with you are 1,000 other people who also want to land one of those sunbathing beauties. So when the beach opens, 1,000 of you guys are going to run in to try to get 10 good ones. I said, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. Everyone's trying to get the same job at like Goldman Sachs and Google or whatever it is. He said, yeah, so leave the beach. Get off the beach. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, go to the library. Find the nerd at the library. Go somewhere no one else is going. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, He's like, who do you think is flying in a private jet to hire Harvard Business School graduates? big, fancy companies with lots of money, and if you got into one of those places, you would have the same degree as everybody else. Your All your accolades would immediately be neutralized by the fact that you're at a table with a bunch of people with MBAs and PhDs or whatever. I was like, yeah, that's true. He's like, so call up the broken companies, the bankrupt companies, the companies down on their luck, the companies with a big PR problem, the companies that have lost money or lost confidence, if you call them up and you get inside. They will listen to you. They will give you a seat at the table. You will be a big fish in a small pond, and as a result, you will get more learning. You'll get more growth. You'll be leading a larger team at a younger age, and you will go up and up and up and learn way more. So I used this advice. I made a list of 100 companies that I was interested in that were going through hard times. I cold called them all. I got into like 50 of them, like just by a cold call. Then from there, I got like, I don't know, something like 10 or 15 interviews and five offers and all from companies off the beach. I ended up at Walmart where I worked for 10 years. And when I got there, I was the only one with a master's degree in the whole company. So I basically had something nobody else had. I had lots of nobody else. Like I had lots less experience too. I had no Walmart experience, operations experience, and store experience, but the stuff I had was different. And the point of this lesson is that different is better than better. Being a big fish in a small pond, according to the research, there's a lot of research on this, actually dramatically increases your academic self-concept, which means how you think of yourself. The interesting thing about the research is that confidence stays up for up to 10 years after you leave the pond. Meaning, if you put yourself in a game you can win in a smaller pond, if you golf from the tees closer to the pin, if you enter the marathon in the slower category, then you think you're awesome for way longer after you leave. So finding small ponds, which I think is chapter seven of the book, is all about kind of putting yourself in purposeful situations where you can win them. How does this solve anxiety and how does this build resilience? Well, we live in a world today where you can never win that's the whole nature of the internet just tells you you suck at everything you're always lower than everybody else so putting yourself in a situation you can win actually dramatically helps us
2: i love that i think this do you think this can extend to inside a company where if you're in a company and you're just another number if you add skill x that you know will make you in your own small pond or a niche that it makes you extremely valuable do you think this can extend inside a company as well
0: yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. I, I, it really comes down to this idea of different is better than better. You know, when I was f- first asked to give speeches, um, they told me, oh, we want to pay you this much money. The speaking agency said that. They wanted to put me at a high number because they wanted to sell me for that much, so they got the commission. And I said, oh, who else is in that range? And they honestly named a bunch of people who I'd heard of. Like, they were like, rock star professors, they were Olympic athletes, they were like, you know, best selling authors. And I said, oh, who's in the lowest range, like the lowest, bottom-of-the-barrel, cheapest speaker you can buy? And then they named a bunch of people I'd never heard of before. And I said, well, put me down there. And they said, no, 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 that's too cheap. I said, well, I want to start at the bottom. Well, what happened? I was sent to give speeches, still for like way more money than I thought I deserved. But it was like at a boardroom, like half an hour from my house for like 30 people. In the higher price ranges... Because I've moved up over the years. Now it's like you go to Vegas and talk to a, you know, a casino full of a 1,000 people. Well, that's really stressful. But now I have confidence, academic self-concept to do well in those stages because I had so many years of practicing at the smaller one. So purposely trying to put yourself in a game you can win is better for you in the long run.
1: There's a. I was thinking as I was reading this. Is there obviously there's a, a whole bunch of upside to being the the big fish in the small pond. But I was thinking, is it just is that just making it too easy if you're picking the the easy wins? At what point do you need to sort of start moving up to to bigger and bigger ponds?
0: Yeah, it depends on where you are. So when I went to go see John MacArthur, I was down on my luck. I was downtrodden. I was feeling negative. I was not confident. I was feeling bad about myself. You see, in that situation, this was perfect advice. But if you're supremely self-confident graduating from Ivy League University at the top of your class, like, go ahead. You know, it, it comes down to this root question. Would you rather be a nine in a group of fives, a five in a group of nines, or a nine in a group of nines? Okay. So nine in a group of five is kind of what I'm advocating for, the big fish in a small pond. Five in a group of nines is how I would have felt had I landed or interviewed at any of those jobs I'm talking about. Like, I would have felt like a really small fish in a really big pond. And a nine in a group of nines is that third thing that I think you're asking about, which I'm saying, if you're ready for it, go for it. Like some people wrote back to me when I wrote that email about this originally and they said, oh, Neil, like I work at McKinsey. All my peers have PhDs in philosophy. I feel like I'm working with the smartest people. I love it. I'm like, okay, great. But for all the people like me with lower confidence or lower belief in themselves, it's worth it to put yourself somewhere else you can win. So it depends on how you feel about yourself, I think, at the time.
1: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's uh, that makes sense. I think you answered my uh, my one big hesitation. So yeah, uh, we wanted to talk about books next, and uh, I've got here that uh, last time we spoke, which was about twelve months ago, we asked for some of your most uh, impactful books, and you gave um, us you gave us you? Uh, the Black Swan, uh, yeah. which I think was a you just recently read, and we just recently read as well, uh, Infinite Jest, mm-hmm. uh, Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Yes. And then Killing and Dying. Uh, oh, yeah, that's so, a good one. Uh, so, those were you gave us last time. We are sort of keen to think now, well, after doing all this uh, research and reading into uh, resilience and, and uh, sort of grit and building yourself up and all of these themes in You Are Awesome, what are some of your uh, book recommendations around these similar sorts of themes that people can go to next?
0: Yeah, oh, that's such a good question. Uh, And thank you for telling me all the books I said last time so I don't say the same books again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's interesting about reading because, you know, I'm doing this podcast. It's called Three Books. Every time I sit down with somebody, I'm asking them which three books most changed their life. Guess what? Like, so next week I'm interviewing Dr. Jen Gunter. She wrote The Vagina Bible, and she's given me three books. She gave me them this week. It's like uh, one of the books from the um, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe series um there's a book like a jane austen book pride and prejudice and there's another book water ship down okay i have those three books on my bedside table between now and next week probably there's no chance i'm going (laughs) to read all three of them but i i have that on my like head kind of thing as like the things i should be spending my time reading so since i do 26 interviews like this a year that's 75 books right there then i have this book club every month i'm trying to like give people in the world interesting books to read. They're not necessarily around the things I'm writing about. They're things that I'm reading about. So all I'm trying to say is just make a gigantic excuse for the fact that my answer <laughs> is like, going to be all over the place. But I, here's here's a few books I've read um, that have really stuck with me. Okay. Number one is uh, Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. Do you know this book?
1: No. I've heard of his uh, uh, more recent one, Lost Connections, but I haven't heard yeah. of that
0: one. Right. Well, this book is amazing. It is the history of the war on drugs. And what comes out of this book is just the gigantic belief that the war on drugs and the illegalization of drugs has created all the now stuck markets that we can't get out of involving the mob, the mafia, uh, illegal drug trade, all that kind of stuff that's really harmed people. And, um, it's just does it speak to resilience yeah there's lots of stories of resilience in this book and how people are overcoming and working through this the system we've created for ourselves but more than anything it's a captivating narrative nonfiction look at everything to do with drugs right in the day and age today where drugs are quickly becoming legal many countries or some countries like mine canada have, have legalized things like marijuana so it's very very timely came out a few years ago and i can't recommend like a better nonfiction book that i've read this year um so check that one out. In terms of fiction, I really, really like Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Um, I was dismayed to learn that after I read it, it was like a Reese Witherspoon pick and an Oprah pick, and I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone wants to like this too? For me, it was like just this incredible tapestry story of race relations, cultural relations, um, class relations in a small town in America, and I do believe and I don't know if you and I agree on this or not, but I do believe that reading fiction, especially literary fiction, is what actually expands my mind more than nonfiction these days. Do you guys? You guys read more nonfiction, I think.
1: I don't think I've. I can't even remember the last fiction book I read. So we, uh, yeah, maybe we'll, we we'll hear have that. Together, a, we yeah. hear
0: that a lot, Neil. It's something we
2: should probably venture out into a bit more into the, <laughs> the fiction land. I read one book. It was called um, Ender's Game. It was my first fiction book. Yeah, I really yeah, loved great,
0: it. Great yeah, exactly. Here's the thing. I think people. So I used to be exactly like you, and I'm not saying I'm, uh, you know, different or whatever. But I'm saying I used to read mostly nonfiction because my belief system was, oh, this is real learning. I actually will gain some new knowledge. I will have some insight. I will learn a skill or a tool, and that's all true. The thing is, as you get older and as the grayness in the world becomes bigger, there's less black and white, and there's more. It's all about softness and relationships and how you interact with people and what, how you treat people. It's like Actually, the things I'm really trying to learn now as I get older are things like empathy and compassion and understanding and connectedness and all these crazy soft skills that aren't actually taught in a book, but you can learn through a life that you can inhabit for a brief period. And I think fiction does that. It's not just me, though. All the research on like, reading as, as um, beneficial to your brain so 2011 annual review of psychology they did MRI scans Emory University shows that you know the, the day after you read fiction especially literary fiction so that's like stuff you read in high school catch catch 22 catcher in the rye lord of the flies like these books that are great gatsby that are assigned to you typically it just it just means like harder fiction challenging stuff those books actually increase your brain activity in all kinds of areas of your brain that we didn't know that they actually activated and certainly a lot more and. I only tell you guys this, then things like watching TV do or, you know, listening to music and all this stuff because you're using more of your brain because uh, you're the director. You're the one that has to pick what the character looks like, what they sound like, what the room looks like, um, what they're wearing, what the costume is. If you watch TV or movie, someone made all those decisions for you. So you can kind of lazily or more passively consume it. Whereas a book, you cannot read a work of fiction and not be mentally engaged in it, it is be, it's meditative it slows you down it exposes you to all kinds of emotional complexities that i think are really important in life and you end up being a better human being there's a great quote from game of thrones uh where he says george r, r. martin says a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies the man who never reads lives only one
2: yeah that's good that's good
1: shit I'm solid on fiction. Are you are you going to get on the fiction bandwagon, Ashton? Probably not for the podcast. Maybe in your in, in our own time we can uh, dabble. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, start start with something that's winnable. Start with a you know be a big fish in a small pond. Read like a hunt. Read Alice in Wonderland. It's a hundred pages. It's mind expanding as as heck, and it's so interesting. It's so fascinating, mathematical, twisted, interesting story.
1: We did a, uh, answer,
0: we did I just a- read it this year.
1: Oh nice! We did a uh, Doctor Seuss book um, for the podcast, so that was probably as uh, as close as we've got to the uh, to the fiction. Uh, which one? Oh, uh, the places you go, which I think you yeah, yeah. you hung a, a little bit of uh, of shade on in the in the, in your book, <laughs> <laughs> ever so slightly. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's a, a phenomenal little book for me, and that was uh, that was a very 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 small pond, so I felt like a very big fish being able to read the the kids' book. And we'll have to we'll have to inject. Actually, we said this at the start of the year. One of the guests we uh, interviewed also said that uh, you know we should inject some fiction. And I think Jonesy, you committed to doing one or two books. Yeah, I bought
2: uh, a I bought a big book and. I didn't really get through it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe, okay, maybe 2020, Don't we'll try, and, we'll try and inject a few. I also <laughs> <wonder like 100 laughs> yeah. So good. Um, okay, fantastic, Neil. Well, thanks so much for the, the chat again. We always love chatting to you about your books and then about books more broadly. Uh, tell us about uh, You Are Awesome, which, uh, which people can go and get now, your brand new book.
0: Yeah, or oh, you mean just tell you like- Yeah, <laughs> as in where,
1: where, can they, where can they get it? Where can they find you? Yeah. Where can they yeah. uh, find more about Neil and about being awesome?
0: Sure, every single thing we talked about, whether that's my books, whether that's all my – I do I do weekly emails, um, newsletters, my podcast. Really, the center point for everything I'm doing is just neil.blog, N-E-I-L dot B-L-O-G. And I'm also one of these guys who does publicize my email address. I feel like – my inbox is a bit of a cesspool, but it's an interesting cesspool, and it can be mesmerizing to look at. So I put my I put my email address everywhere, including at the end of this podcast. So if you are listening to the end of this podcast and you made it all the way to the end, feel free to drop me a line. It's just neil at globalhappiness.org, N-E-I-L at globalhappiness.org. I always love talking to people, especially people who listen to such a great show as yours and who made it to the end. Drop me a line if you want to chat.